So this is my distinct pleasure to uh, talk to you on uh, some thoughts and ideas which uh, came to me in the process of communication with this uh, incredible teaching. And we will be switching paradigms, though. And uh, I want to say a few words about it to uh, link the perspective of this talk with the perspective that Samer uh, presented you uh, just a few minutes ago. Uh, in the times of Descartes, there was a scholar called Giambattista Vico. He lived in Naples, and he happened to be the leading opponent of uh, Descartes. The reason I'm mentioning Vico is that he is considered now to be the founder of what is called in psychology the parallel tradition the tradition of human science, which posits that consciousness can be studied in so far as we are consciousness. And therefore, because we know consciousness intimately as us, we can obtain reliable and valid knowledge of this thing called consciousness because it happens to be our immediate subjectivity. On the contrary, Descartes posited that what we can study is something that we can look at and measure. And since we cannot study, cannot measure consciousness in ways we can measure the body out there, it presents a problem of reliable and valid knowledge if one can study consciousness at all. So this parallel tradition over time gave rise to human science, gave rise to uh, philosophies such as uh, philosophy of Herder, this is the German philosopher, who spoke much about the contexts of the self, about how human psyche gets embedded and constructed by uh, various social and historical uh, contexts. So over time, in current psychology, it fructified into the so-called human science. And so I identify myself now as a human scientist, as phenomenological psychologist, which is concerned by, uh, which means that uh, in my research I'm concerned by the question of how knowledge presents itself through the actual living human being. From that perspective, there will be two bodies that we have. That is, we have a phenomenological body, the body of experience, and the body which is studied by the natural science, the biological body. That's the one which shows up as a corpse upon dying. And so that corporeal material body sometimes gets confused with the phenomenological body. And so... Um, when I will be using the term body today, that is the phenomenological body that I will be referring to. It is very interesting uh, that, uh, well, for me, that as I've been preparing this talk, it somehow took me in the direction uh, which um, was nearly completely different from what I planned originally, because I've been hoping to present you the decent uh, intellectual and logical uh, digest of how Ibn Arabi 
can be influential and meaningful in current education and psychotherapy. But the material acquired the life of its own and became unruly. And so since I have a confused identity already, I am Russian-American and, and, or American-Russian, and, uh, and that's especially meaningful when, you know, you have the war in Iraq is going on and you present in Europe, that's you're always getting questioned. So I'm, I'm, I'm doing self-disclosure right away. Since I have a confused identity, I will be presenting you a set of uh, confused concepts, but we'll see where we get. <laughs> So it's called Mediating Intimacy, Essential Ibn Arabi for Education and Psychotherapy. And the argument will be constructed in the following way. First of all, we'll look at the uh, at what does it mean to use spiritual tradition, to refer to spiritual tradition as a developmental psychology. In other words, when we borrow insights about human nature and human development from traditions which were developed in, in foreign countries or which were developed centuries ago, what are the challenges? Is that simple verbatim borrowing, uh, what can be borrowed, what, not can, what is difficult to borrow? So we'll look at it. When we look at intellectual or spiritual tradition as the intrapsychic reality, as a developmental psychology which tends to describe to us how people are. What is the problem of borrowing insights of this system? Then we'll take a look at what is called spiritual heart. That is the um, leaving body's gateway to knowledge. And when I'm talking about it, I'm talking about the phenomenological body. And I'm talking about the phenomenological heart. So how does it relate to corporeal heart? Then, um, God forbid, I will be talking about what can be lost in translation. <laughs> so, uh, and, and, and uh, I will be pointing out that while we know very well, it seems to me, based on the current translation, what is the perfect man about, it's a little bit difficult to find indications to what is the imperfect man, and especially woman, will be about. So we'll, we'll, we'll play a little bit with those concepts. Uh, we'll focus on topological phenomenology of the heart, and that is the area of phenomenology which is up and developing now, which places lived experience of the psyche, lived experience of meaning into the context of the uh, tangible space-bound body, meaning happens in space, so how? That's topological phenomenology of the heart. And then we look at the hermeneutic cycles of wisdom and therapy and education, how this incredible knowledge which articulated itself through this beautiful form called Ibn Arabi, how this incredible knowledge uh, is continuing to live and work in actual people in education and therapy. So, as I mentioned already, we need to position this kind of inquiry because as we start working with a living human being, in a sense, it gets, uh, gets the researcher, or as one starts working with a living human being, it gets researcher a little bit uh, divorced with a tradition of pure textual analysis. Um, and uh, I think that it is very important to connect with cultural psychology, to take a look at oral tradition, and uh, to understand how the con uh, contexts of this oral tradition influence the interpretation of uh, self. Um, <clears throat> 
I believe that it will be correct to say that when we study Ibn Arabi, in fact, we are in the realms of the description of how self functions and lives in the mode of ego transcendence. And when I say self, I refer to the whole complex of internal experiences available to human being. So when I say me, referring to myself in a very common sense way, that's the sum of lived experience that I am referring to. So here you are having the common sense definition of the self. And so if contemporary psychology posits that self operates within the realms of ego, that, that the task of psychology is to make one better adapted, to make one uh, into a better competitor, into a better householder by working with the ego structure. The psychology that, of the kind that we see in Ibn Arabi is the one which points out to the realms beyond the ego, to the realms beyond the individual identity, uh, to the realms where the origins of things in the actual life of me are hardly separable. I find this very interesting also that um, the fact that Ibn Arabi brings into psychology, and so far psychology is open to it, and it is now, uh, that which remediates the postmodern post loss of self. In psychology at large and in transpersonal psychology, um, there is a great popularity of um, uh, perspectives which um, deconstruct uh, human being into the set of states. Uh, like Buddhism, for example. This is the uh, human being as described according to uh, original Theravada, early Buddhist paradigm, is nothing but the set of rising states which are not connected by any kind of a unified principle. That creates the whole set of problems. What about me as the acting, functioning, making decision, integral being? If I am but the connection, co collection of the states of consciousness, then it doesn't allow me to identify and express my agency in the world. That may sound a little bit abstract, but uh, for, for psychotherapy, for psychotherapeutic session, uh, this is a big question. Whom am I working with? Am I working with a limited ego? Am I working with a human being who is inherently capable of inside, beyond the ego, or am I working with a collection of the states of consciousness? So there is lots of critique of the um, postmodern configuration of the human being as empty, split, uh, loss of meaning. Various psychosomatic diseases will be connected to that postmodern split self. Uh, some thinkers say that this is the result of uh, war and genocide which hit humankind in the 20th century. But basically the idea is that self is not exactly healthy. And so what it seems this perspective brings is the wholeness of the self and the integration of the empty and alienated parts, which otherwise uh, suffer tremendously because of their own you know, broken nature. And then the other uh, area where this inquiry really grounds itself, it's looking at the um, individuation as the process of the development of the human psyche as really 
as ontogeny, as the self-expression of what is real, as the unfolding of that which is beyond the ego, which it seems to me a very noble perspective to hold in regard to one's uh, life. In education, this teaching transpires as understanding of the gradual maturation of the approaches to knowing, which allow us as teachers to use those uh, approaches in the classroom and um, uh, reach the uh, better outcomes, better educational outcomes. But hopefully I'll get time to talk about it more in detail. This perspective, um, perspective on the great teaching as something which can contribute uh, to psychology as, uh, as, as, as a living teaching or to education as the approach to education brings immediately a number of tensions. <clears throat> and the first tension which becomes very prominent um, is the uh, inquiry into relationship between the practice, between the practice of inner doing, between spiritual practice and the spontaneous revelation. Okay, when, <clears throat> when I'm reading this great text, which um, written by this incredible person called Ibn Arabi, it's very difficult for me to separate the insight which I encounter in his writings from the actual uh, background thought whether he did any spiritual practice in order to attain this insight. And what were the relationship between the spiritual practice and the degree of his incredible vision? What are the relationship between how the human being practice and changes him or herself and the uh, grace or love through which divine unveils itself within this particular locale, whether be it great Sheikh Akbar or be it myself or my client? What are the relationship? Which one is leading? which one provides for the human development, the effort and the internal doing or the descent of grace in response to the loving attitude, praxis vis-a-vis -vis love, what is the root of transformation? The other tension which emerges right away is the tension connected with the mind-body split. Because I, as I will be uh, talking later, Relationship between the mind and the body are not the same through the history of the humankind. They do change, as you might have seen in the variety of perspectives presented by the prior speaker. But the, um, there is a research which shows to what degree this transformation is affecting the ways we, uh, or this change is affecting the ways we see the world, the ways we construct our philosophies and our relationship with our close ones. How do we attain knowledge? Do we attain knowledge through the body or do we attain knowledge through the mind? The knowledge by presence, which is the foundational epistemology and teachings of Ibn Arabi, where is that sitting? Is the knowledge of presence through perception initially? Is it through the body? Is it through the mind? That's a problem. Now, the self itself, is self-essential? Is self-essential or is self-constructed? 
this is also the problem which is related to borrowing the paradigm coming from the spiritual tradition and putting it into the prax- practice. Meaning, if I am working in Germany or if I am working in, uh, let's say, in India, will the teaching have the same relevance? Whether the difference between the individuated Western self or the difference and and the more community or related and interrelated Indian self, whether this difference affects the ways in which the teaching can be used in healing or educational uh, process. Gender, the notion of gender, whether this is a relative notion or whether this is the absolute notion. Whether, uh, well, you know, the, the, uh, whether the quality of receptivity is feminine and the quality of activity is masculine. Whether when I speak in those terms, whether this will be the same in the context of Latin American culture and in the context of Arabic culture. How does it relate? So you see, we are getting into a number of very interesting questions here. Now then the translation, whether the translation itself is verbatim or whether the translation is interpretive. Unfortunately, I don't read Arabic, Arabic, but fortunately, I do read Sanskrit. So I'm familiar with a variety of possible ways to contextualize in subtle subtle ways, to contextualize uh, in subtle ways the interpretation of the text, uh, uh, of the translation. And so... um, how does this work? How does this uh, help us? Does it help us or it doesn't help us to uh, work with those texts in therapy? So there is this problem. And then, of course, the problem of the, of the tradition. Which one carries the absolute point of reference, whether the oral tradition or the textual tradition will be the one which, which we can ground ourselves in actual practice in, and whether the oral or the textual tradition is the one which infuses education and psychotherapy. So I started talking about the mind-body split, which happened historically. And um, here are uh, just a couple of interesting observations. They don't belong to me. They belong to the uh, historian of psychology called Lind. Uh, They were published in the Journal of uh, Body and Mind. So it's a pretty much uh, cognitive behavioral journal which looks at the history of the construction of the mind. And so uh, he discovered that soul... Uh, and heart in the ancient thought related mainly to inner spiritual and frequently affective experience which is attained through the body. Uh, and, uh, for example, in uh, ho- Heroes of Homer, think with their diaphragm. Uh, Jung brings us the, um, it's a phrenic mind, so-called phrenic mind, you know, and there are multiple references in the text, uh, in text that the process of thinking will not be connected with the head, it will be connected with the body, actually, with the diaphragm. Later on, I'll illustrate it in artifacts. Um, it's known, this is a very famous statement coming from the Indian American culture, this uh, you can find in Jung's works, where um, he talks to the old Indian, and, um, and this uh, person tells him that Westerners are crazy. And then uh, Carl Jung asks, why is it so? Well, because they think with their heads. And then um, uh, Jung says, well, uh, uh, how, how can it be possible otherwise? What is it that you think with? And he says, I think with my heart. 
You know, we think with our hearts. And this is not the abstracted heart as the full volume of awareness available to human being. That is the placed heart, the situated heart, uh, tied to the particular location in the body where the thought is actually experienced. So when I think with my heart, and then, let's say, or Indian thinks with his heart, and I'm thinking with my head, doesn't make us into different, into different human beings. What will be common between us, and what will be different between us? What will share and what will not share? So, Self of the modernity moves from the inner subjectivity to the outward disposition. And then um, self begins to be associated with the face. And so mind-body split kicks in somewhere around the, uh, well, probably from the 9th century, from the... um, First centuries of Christianity, actually even earlier, you're already tracking the traces of this mind-body separation and the cognitive process gets reoriented and reinterpreted. The notion of individuality, the notion of agency, the notion of choice, the notion of will uh, do not exist in ancient thought. And so the reason I'm bringing that in is that when the teaching... Um, is interpreted in, in context of the actual work with a human being. Do I interpret it from the perspective in which it was written? That is the perspective of the heart, and what kind of heart is here? Or do I interpret it from the perspective of my Western split self, which is external and concerned by the faculties of agency and choice, or individuality, or will, but maybe that will is different from the will which was meant by Ibn Arabi. So there are all those questions which are arising when it gets into the actual work with the person. Let me give you an example of how it transpires in translation. Uh, so this is the quote from Futuhat. If the properly prepared person persists in zikr, remembering God, and spiritual retreat, emptying the place of the heart from thinking and sitting like a poor beggar who has nothing at the doorsteps of their Lord, then God will bestow upon them and give them some of that knowing of him, of those divine secrets and super, super, supernatural, I think, supernal, I'm not sure I wrote it right here, understandings which he granted to his servant Al-Qadzir. I highlighted the words which struck me as phenomenological analyst as leading in, in this uh, paragraph. The word zikr, the word spiritual retreat, halvet, and the place of the heart. So let me play a little bit with it. I happen to uh, be very connected with the tradition of the living zikr uh, and uh, tradition also of the prayer of the heart. This is the somatic devotional self-inquiry which involves focusing in the particular area of the body. You won't find it written anywhere because it exists specifically within the oral tradition. And the ways of focusing are secreted because you can focus on the right, you can focus on the left, you can focus in the center. And dependent on how you focus in the process of remembering uh, God, in the process of invocation of divine names, 
dependent on how one focuses, one is getting the different results. You can achieve this kind of descent or that kind of descent can be granted. This kind of ego transcendence or that kind of ego transcendence uh, can be happening. And so when I'm looking at the uh, interpretations which can be found in the existing uh, commentaries or t- uh, to the translations of the original text of Ibn Arabi, Zikr is interpreted as the mental operation Remembrance of God, which is not involving the bodily focusing. Uh, maybe I didn't read enough, uh, because my knowledge of this tradition, as I said, is, uh, is limited, and it's, uh, it's not the lifetime of studies, but just a little bit. Maybe this is because I come from the different perspective, and I work with actual people, and I am phenomenologist, and I publish not in Arabista studies, I publish in Analecta Husserliana, so that's a different animal and a different collection of um, uh, papers. But the only zikr that I ever saw working is always somatic. Like practice of yoga, like practice of chakras, it involves getting the focus away from the head into the heart and more or less sophisticated focusing in the chest. It can emerge spontaneously, not necessarily as an intentional focusing, just simply because when people experience the effect of love and devotion, consciousness shifts to the heart. But This can be also done intentionally, as it is done, for example, in Jirahi Zikr, or it's done in Bektashi Living Zikr, when there is a very sophisticated work of breath and focusing involving the areas of the living body. Now, spiritual retreat, Halvet, is uh, it's a 40 days in a uh, secluded uh, place, right, which is going cross-traditional in Judeo-Christian tradition, as well as in Islam, you'll find the description of Halvet. And Halvet is internal doing. It's actually the, not only the invocation, which is vocal or mental, but it's the intense focusing practice, which brings out perceptual changes due to the relocation of centering from the head to, into the body. Now he says, emptying the place... And then in parentheses you see of the heart. Yeah, you can see it here. Very frequently in ancient texts you'll find just the word place. Come on. Disappeared. Anyway, you find just the word place. And what it refers to is the specific locale in the interior space of the chest where the mind subsides, causing the experience of inner stillness. This is the place that you find in the writings of Maimonides, Maimonides, the Arab. It's Alexandrian um, body of literature. Uh, This is what you find in tantric teachings, the place, the locale, where breath, the in-breath, turns into the out-breath, So, yes, it is the place of the heart, but it is not the actual place on the left. It's in the center of the chest. And what is most important, it seems to me, that this is the locale. It has certain coordinates. It can be found experientially within the body. Now, the commentary, which 
I, I mean, I love the commentary because it, it brings, for, for the reader, it brings all those incredible insights together. But the commentary, it seems to me, brings in the perspective which is slightly different or kind of uh, goes a little bit in the direction which is a little bit different from the actual meaning as I tried right now to lift this meaning from the text. The commentary says, Ibn Arabi's expression here apparently refers to characteristic understanding that each being's inner strivings or petitions to God are a prayer in the broadest possible sense, whether or not consciously or appropriately formulated necessarily are directed towards one or another specific aspects of the overall divine reality expressed in Quranic tombs by many of the divine names, Lord, Kings, etc., that constitute the ontological lodge of the individual. That, I, I totally agree with that. I think that it's absolutely there. But the actual doingness, the inner praxis aspect, I mean, and it cannot be here because without the special analysis using the approach again of topological phenomenology, how on earth can this be uh, inferred? But you see, uh, there are those tensions. Okay. So uh, Lin says that historical changes in the bodily aspects of consciousness are a current mind-body split, creates the interpret well, interpretive frames which are likely to distort the picture of actual practice um, recommended by Ibn Arabi. So Lin says that historical changes of the bodily aspects of consciousness create the interpretive frames. I already applied to Ibn Arabi, but the point is, the point that I'm trying to make, that when we are reading the instructions to the actual in the doing, we may not be completely in tune with the original, original way of how it was happening. We need to look, of course, at, um, uh, you know, at, at the actual praxis, uh, how it happened in the tradition at the times of Ibn Arabi. That's, that's just so far, it's just a suggestion which is coming from the comparative analysis. But uh, so alternative uh, hypothesis uh, may be that the actual inner doing might have remained only within the oral tradition. Maybe, maybe you cannot base this kind of understanding on the text at all. And, and when we have to look into a completely different uh, approach to, to what and how was, um, you know, retained and passed on within the tradition from teacher to disciple in terms of the actual and how this tradition can be recognized. Constructed. Well, this is the little map, and I owe the origins of this map to the five-year-old Theo, who recommended me to look at Google Earth. And so in, in preparing the slide, found, uh, I've, been, I've been thinking, okay, where shall I get the representation of Mediterranean? So thank you, Theo, for his contribution to the study. Um, the signs of the heart are uh, indicating the places where, through texts, belonging to uh, different uh, times in history or through the actual living tradition now which can count itself back through centuries one can see uh, zikr or find zikr find the living prayer of the heart or find the devotional somatic self-inquiry because as I will be arguing further uh, zikr or prayer of the heart, insofar as they are remembrance of God, they are also rendering the knowledge of the self, the actual direct perceptual knowledge of the inner reality of the self, 
and they are the forms of non-analytic but somatic self-inquiry. So, of course, Iberian Peninsula, you, we have, you know, uh, Judaic uh, texts which tell about the practices of the heart, and you can, uh, through analysis, see that this, these practices are rooted in the actual living body. Uh, there is Pahuda treatise of the heart. Um, uh, in the 20th century, the Christian tradition uh, expressed in Raimunda Panikar um, uh, describes the, uh, the or, or gives us the knowledge of this inner practice uh, associated with somatic focusing. Then, of course, uh, Sheikh Al-Akbar um, himself, um, and, and I think that I by now pretty much can prove through his writings the, that he was exposed to the tradition of Zikr in, in very many different forms, and, and especially as a young boy, I, I do believe that he was practicing with particular breath and particular focusing because that's how everybody does it, you know. Um, now, uh, when we start... Hello? No, that's... I don't want this picture yet. Okay. So uh, then, of course, uh, Mediterranean, uh, Sicily, where you find the artifacts which directly indicate to this use of the somatic self-inquiry, um, Egyptian medical texts, pre-Christian tradition uh, in... Um, Egypt, and then, of course, uh, Christianity, the origins of Christianity and uh, Judaism. I think that the word heart is uh, mentioned in uh, Old Testament about uh, 80,000 times. So uh, to assume that it's, it's the highly metaphorical uh, expression which relates to the full volume of awareness available to human being alone, I think it's, it's kind of a strange use of the metaphor. It certainly uh, relates to the actuality of the physical heart and to spiritual heart, and you can lift it from texts. Uh, the early... Um, uh, early Hekalot uh, Zuratri, that's the um, treatise uh, uh, in, in Judaism which belongs to the second century, speaks directly about the practices of the somatic focusing in the heart and the stillness which results from it. Then if you start going into the Eastern Europe, into Romania, into uh, Russia, you'll find multiple locations where tradition remained alive, not as Zikr because it's a Christian country, but as prayer of the heart. But these are the, uh, the same, the repetitive forms of practice with a specific breath and focusing. And, um, and then Baghdad, you have, of course, Hakim Termidi with the levels of the heart which are tied very clearly to particular organization of experience. Now, I had some very interesting things shared with me by Muslims from Sudan and uh, um, by somebody who um, did extensive cultural work in, uh, in uh, Iraq. And uh, I don't yet have a permission to formally quote him, but uh, I will tell you um, the spirit. The Ismaili communities in Iraq are very centered, especially rural communities, were very centered around the practice of zikr using particular divine names. When the religious leader, uh, who was supposed to be the authority who assigns those divine names to practitioners, uh, reconsidered this process and decided that 
uh, people are not yet ready to enter the practice of uh, Zikr using divine names and stopped giving out those names, those communities started declining. So it was as if the pole of consciousness which organized the life of those communities was undermined, you know. And this is not the intellectual inquiry. That's the actual inner somatic practice involving focusing. Now, I spoke to a very educated uh, uh, medical doctor, Muslim uh, woman from uh, Sudan, who told me that in... uh, um, uh, Sunni tradition, there is uh, no, well, there is of course no reliance on imams, so people, people pick up those names by themselves. That's the process of internal uh, revelation, and so the community gets together and they decide what kind of name is shared and what kind of practice will be happening. So that's what they do in, in Sudan, and they do consider it uh, uh, as a process which holds together the life of the community and, um, you know, allows the culture to sustain itself and reproduce itself. So now we are getting into the study. This gentleman, whom some of you know, has three hearts, though he objects to the idea, but <laughs> that's, that's part of which is the oral tradition, part of which is scriptural studies, but basically the one on the left, which corresponds, the center, which corresponds to the uh, actual anatomical heart, um, gives the uh, entry when focused correctly and worked with names, um, worked with by names, um, uh, this center uh, gives the entry into the cosmic uh, realms, into cosmic consciousness. Everything is embraced in the experience of the uh, left heart. On the right side, you have the center of individuation, which is here in yellow. In the center, uh, in green, there is the center of body transcendence where the formless consciousness is experienced. So uh, many of you will probably recognize that this is the part of the Lataif system. And though the teachings of um, Ibn Arabi way transcend the Lataif system, to assume that, uh, I assume that he was familiar with Lataif and probably practiced Lataif, and that serves as a gateway to knowledge. Uh, so the body is a gateway to knowledge, though, of course, later the body is transcended. But this knowledge is very important for actual practice in therapy and education because whom I work with and who I am as a practitioner is the imperfect man. And so I do need to know how the meanings are situated in the body and how through the body it connects with the uh, great insights related to the transcendence and what then happens to the embodied levels of the psyche. So these are psycho-spiritual centers of somatic awareness in the chest. <clears throat> so these are the studies of the place of the heart that I've been conducting for a while uh, as a psychologist uh, using uh, focus groups and uh, study with individuals. I interviewed experts, I interviewed practitioners, I interviewed people who had the spontaneous opening of the heart regarding the structure of their knowing. uh, there is a method that I use when I uh, work with uh, groups of people of the dialogical explication of the sense of self as experienced in the heart and its interior structures. And so uh, we'll go into the study a little bit now. How am I doing on time? Where, where, where am I? Like midway, probably. Okay. All right, so this is the, um, the amount of participants in the study uh, is above 300. So that allows to say that those structures are indeed essential, they're indeed invariable. So this is something which reproduces itself from culture to culture, and as you see, it, will, uh, it relates to the ontology of the self.
the kind of phenomenological analysis, and I uh, apologize for uh, bothering you with those details, but I think that it is very, very important But because what I found, which is frequently called a phenomenology, which is just the description of the human experience, is not exactly what phenomenology is. Phenomenology is a discipline which allows to explicate, to show, to articulate the essences, the skeleton of human experience, that which points out to um, the underpinnings of human experience that and if we know those underpinnings, the skeleton kind of, of how the experience is organized, we may then work very effectively in, in uh, uh, therapy and education. So, and this is phenomenological analysis, not only of meaning, but of perception, it's a topological phenomenological analysis, means analysis of the place where experience is happening. And then, of course, it's transcendental and psychological phenomenological analysis. But the meaning here in this analysis is seen as embodied, is seen as manifesting in the context of the body. And this is my first group uh, a couple of years ago uh, on this slide. Okay, let's move on. So uh, the uh, topological, no, that's, I'm sorry, let's see, okay. Here I wanted to illustrate the locality of the place of the heart in those artifacts. Uh, on the uh, right or left, uh, from the standpoint of the seer, there is the icon of the mother of the sign, where it basically tells us that the self is in the chest. But this is the two-dimensional image. In the center, there is the Hellenistic Persephone from Syracuse. And uh, as you can see, that's the phrenic mind. That's the human being walking in the area of diaphragm. And this person is traveling because... Uh, this figurine uh, refers to the um, uh, foundational um, Egyptian myth, which will uh, be later borrowed by Greek culture, and these are the travels of the soul. So this, this little figurine there is dancing and walking. But what you see here, that between the two images, uh, the self and the heart is acquiring dimension, acquiring corporeality. It's moving from the two-dimensional uh, image to the sculpture. And then this one is the Mitztec uh, figurine from the um, Mexico uh, Museum. Um, and uh, there is a self in the heart. And that's already deep. That's already the heart started revealing its interiority. The meanings are getting discharged from the interiority of the heart. So now as phenomenologists, when we enter the heart and when we want to understand the heart in the living person, we start with the surface, uh, and that's this picture here. And when this is a pretty plain building right on the outside. This is Capella Palatina in Sicily. And when you start entering the building, there is a space inside, and then 
the space opens into arcades and darkness and light and various shapes. And so that's how the meaning in the heart is organized. It's the inward opening universe. It's the life world which allows us to understand itself because it can reveal its invariable structures. So these are the structures in the somatic heart of meaning as they manifest in the experience of people uh, in those groups. Um, They are organized usually as stratified layers, and these are senses and emotions and feelings. People group those experiences. They are lifted from the interior space of the chest. Um, uh, so you see those uh, layers, they kind of come from the more corporeal, uh, more, more dense level into more and more in subtlety, unless it culminates in the direct experience of I am sense. And this is the subjective awareness here, and this is the field of this in the internal experience. So I see this, and that is inside, that is in me. Awareness begins tuning onto itself and grasping its own content, and that's the layers that it uh, produces. Interestingly enough, those layers are invariable. The stratified structure of the heart comes in the writings in the Neoplatonists, comes uh, in, in, in some writings of ancients, and it very much transpires in the journey that Ibn Arabi describes in, in Tarjuman al-Ashwak. Actually, when you start working with the experience of people and the experience that Ibn Arabi describes in Tarjuman, Um, they correspond, and more so if people just practice this internal journeying, they will arrive at the meanings exactly the same as uh, Ibn Arabi describes in Tarjuman al-Ashwak. So this is the journey between the layers, this is the journey between various meanings which arise here, and as focusing goes in and out, uh, it it feels alienated, it goes out, it loses this sense, it loses the possibility of transcendence, then goes in, again, God becomes available. Those layers will be characterized by the various ways of knowing. So there is a lot which comes out of this map for the actual work with the person. Uh, students of mine actually use this map very, uh, uh, very widely in their research. Now, this inner space of the heart in everybody, invariably, will be characterized by the... Uh, that was inside the cell, but then... Um, the inside of the self also contains inside and the outside, right? And on the outside, we have the representation of corporeal others. So at the moment, I can say that all of you are in me and you are outside there as your own selves. And then there will be also the experience of God, internal other. And so that's the dialogical space inside which opens when people enter the interiority of the heart. Now, when you start going into this more, it reveals various modes. The modes of identification, uh, when the ultimate subject gets lost in the rising experiences. And so I am this, I am sad, I am happy, I am fool, I am woman, I am man. I am not saying I am aware of my female body, I am saying I am a woman, etc. So this is already the underpinnings of the actual psychology. Interestingly enough, this inner space also has the characteristics of density, the so-called hyletic uh, intentionality. Um, the notion of hyletics, I believe, was introduced by Aristotle, but was really developed by the um, uh, philosopher from the Netherlands, Porter, Portman. And so Portman looked at how this 
different densities manifest in the teachings of different spiritual traditions. So people who travel this interior space, they also experience lighter and uh, more densities. But this is, again, this is important for therapeutic process because knowing this organization, I can uh, arrive at some kind of analytic insight within several weeks rather than within several years of, of analytic process. So it's just giving some example. So life world of the heart has multiple dimensions. It has affect, uh, it has emotions which operate in a particular way, the so-called subtle soteriological salvational emotions. It has images and meanings. It has this density, the corporeality, time, spaces, bodily focuses. It's informed by knowledge of presence and is positioned within dimension. It transcends dimension, but it is positioned within the dimensions associated with our chest. Now, the interesting thing that when the experience of ego transcendence comes into this uh, universe of the heart, it disrupts the way this universe is organized. It's like a little supernova explosion in the space of the heart. And it can be at the different locations. That gives us the understanding to very many, actually, passages, I believe, from uh, Ibn Arabi's writings, which, consider, which, which um, come through as enigmatic, because dependent on where the experience takes place, one will be exposed to the different variations of descent. You know, in the, it's, it's, it's a fascinating area of the study. But this shows us where the structural reorganization happens in the self after the transcendent experiences. These are the areas of major reorganization. The very sense of self at its origin is getting reorganized. Of course, the field of meanings. Unconscious gets involved in the process very, uh, in a very uh, actually profound way. The sense of space changes. The perception of the body schema changes. People who do those practices, they say... Um, my body feels lighter, my body is transparent to itself, my body is more aware, so the somatic awareness changes, senses function differently. So we are looking at really the profound change in the person uh, when those practice, uh, practices are implied, and the spectrum of identification shifts constantly, of course, between God and concrete me, and so the, what remains the real question, okay, how does this work? I mean, what, what moves it? That's an interesting question. Okay. So what psychological, phenomenological analysis can help to decipher? Well, there is this statement, for example, from the commentary. Finally, and even more mysteriously, each chapter concludes with a long but highly enigmatic catalog of spiritual gifts and insights that are given in connection with divine encounter, often connected with the particular details of the corresponding surah. Well, I believe that there are, you know, that those experiences can be deciphered if the deciphering involves the hermeneutic dialogue with the living subject. If the surah is interpreted and analyzed not only through the logical chains and mythological association, but if the surah is planted into the living person, and then we see the experience that this surah is causing in, in two people, three people more, and then the essential structures 
uh, of this surah, they, they can believe change. Now, the other one, influence of the 28 specific divine names on the world. Why it should have been included in Section 3, which is dedicated to the states, Ashwal, and not particularly clear? I don't know, maybe I'm missing something, but again, for the psychologist who works with actual people in this process, um, where, where else would you include the, the chapter on divine names? These are the states of experience. They are homogenous, they are persistent, they can be stationed or can be transient as states, but these are the phenomenological fields of meaning which are the states and the perceptual states. So it seems, it seems that really there should be the hermeneutic involvement of the human subject. Now, for, for, for the person who finds him or herself in this process, whether through reading or through actual doing of zikr, Self-heart enters the, uh, the, the process which is called ontopoiesis. Remember, I've been talking about this massive uh, restructuring of the self where I'm not the same after all those experiences that happened to me. So uh, it is as if the level of the transcendental being, the actual ground of being, gets challenged by this proximity of the uh, seeker. And uh, in the experience of ego transcendence, when there is no me but he who is, is, and in that somehow I am, in that experience, it's not only the knowledge that is happening, but what happens, the profound transformative impulse to human being comes in because the self begins to change. Archetypes are getting deployed. The deep structure of the mind undergoes through changes. The essential relations in the psyche change. And very soon, you can see the person who went through spontaneously through the whole characterological transformation, the very possibility of which is still getting questioned by psychological science. You see. Okay, I hope I'm not overloading you by, by psychology. Is this making sense? Okay. All right, so these are the um, areas again of the reconstitution of the self uh, after the ego transcendence and the heart. Me other, me build, me God changes, those relationships change. Real and real notion goes completely different. Fear, desire, the affective structure changes. Notion of living and dying gets different. Spontaneous epahe happens, means that God becomes my, it's a love affair, right? We say it's a love affair with God. It's a hide and seek uh, game. So that starts happening more and more and more in phenomenology. It will be described as spontaneous as the reduction of experience into its origin, and then it kind of bounces out. Transparency of inner space, rise of direct intuition, and then people become painfully aware of their own developmental process. Sometimes they start saying, I'm in the major transition in my life. It's the monumental change that I'm going through, and nobody can get it outside, because what do you mean? You walk the same, you look the same, and you kind of are stuck with things with the same issues, but the ontopoietic intuition is that which opens inside. Now, the painful moment of what is lost in translation, <laughs> the imperfect man, I said. Let me read you this remarkable pa paragraph from Futuhat and then give you the life story where this paragraph lands. Um, well, uh, the, the uh, commentator says that then um, Ibn Arabi gives us the story of a personal acquaintance who frequented the same masters of Hadith in the city of Ceuta, 
a highly respected and unusually modest religious judge who was famous for his rare charismatic ability to establish peace among feuding parties of the tri- or tribes. An ability that Ibn, Ar- uh, Ibn Arabi attributes to his extreme conscientiousness and concern for maintaining only a disinterested, divine point of view in his inner relation to his legal duties. This leads him to take up a broader divine standards of judgment regarding all our actions, especially their inner spiritual aspect. Now, this portion remains untranslated because... It's a particular example. It doesn't give us the the, uh, big uh, cosmological perspective. Uh, It's not, you know, it's not perfect man. It's it's a particular element which seems to be pretty on the level of maybe even accidents. I don't know. But anyway, it's not the main core of the text, evidently. I read this portion after already this research that I will be telling you about in a second was done. And I've been struck by how, without phenomenological grounding, the absolutely essential piece may be missed in translation. This student of mine, Sarah Burge, uh, did the phenomenological study of peace activists uh, in Israel Three of them were sheikhs, and three of them were uh, rabbis. So they, all of them, all six people, were extremely effective in their respective communities. So they exercised this rare charismatic ability to establish peace among feuding parties, which is so needed in the Middle East. And so those people were effective. People in their communities, they stopped killing each other. So she asked the question, what happens in the psyche of those people? How the psyche of those people is different from the psyche of the average uh, folks or peace activists who are not so effective? And what she discovers, that the intrasubjectivity changes. Let me wind it back. This changes completely gets restructured. This gets confused with this, this gets confused with this. (laughs) And they behold in equally real way the experience within their own self and the experience within the self of the other person. So we are having a transcendence, but it's a horizontal transcendence instead of the vertical transcendence. Now now coming back to that statement, Disinterested divine point of view, then, is there, but it doesn't emerge from detachment. It emerges from the equal empathic penetration into the experience of subject and subject within the object. You see? That's the transcendence. Yes, it is a divine point of view because it beholds both polarities, and it is disinterested from the perspective that it is balanced, but it has nothing to do with the detachment. Those people are passionately attached and passionately involved into what they are doing. But we do live in the society which is very much infu- informed by the Buddhist perspective. So this, when this is read, disinterested divine point of view or divine point of view is disinterested point of view because I need to kill attachment in order to uh, be really a perfect human being, you see. So the paradigms are getting mixed in the insidious way. 
And I think that, I mean, there are other examples. I've been really frustrated when I've been reading um, the chapter on in Futuhat. Um, I don't remember right now. I can find it in the book later, but I don't want to take time. But the chapter basically talks about the establishing uh, the, the specific uh, way of knowing. Uh, Ibn Arabi asks Lord to grant him the particular fixation of attention, the particular positioning of awareness, so that that awareness beholds the divine unfolding all the time. That reminds me, actually, um, Cornel West's statement that we live to correctly position our awareness. So Ibn Arabi asks the Lord, please correctly position my awareness. And now then the, the dialogue follows. What are the stations and, uh, and, and interactions between God and uh, servant in this process of correct positioning of awareness? As a psychologist, I am interested in that part because that will give me the possibility to work with people and, and get them closer to this ontopoietic restructuring, you know, which will address lots of problems that they experience in life. So that's the part which will be missing. It's nearly guaranteed that this is the part which will not be included in translation because it relates to particular vicissitudes of the imperfect man. So anyway, uh, here I am completing finally... And uh, the basic statement that I wanted to say that when the teaching of this magnitude is used in education and psychotherapy, uh, we find ourselves in inevitable hermeneutic interpretive cycles between the living self and the maxims unveiled in the teaching. And what it helps me as a practicing educator and uh, psychologist is to uncover uh, to do is to uncover the intuitively individualized spiritual life within every person and therefore access the resources of the psyche which heal and transform beyond the wildest imagination of the modern psychology. Mm-hmm. There is the other cycle which kicks in, and this is the soma psyche spirit teaching cycle. The somatic awareness is the active part of this cycle. And um, Uh, What what goes into that somatic awareness, the interiority of consciousness, which is beautifully explicated in teachings of Ibn Arabi, but has to be grounded in somatics, Um, the selection of uh, clients or students, uh, the self-selective group will be interested in self-knowledge. Names can be used as antagonists or stimulants of the certain psychological qualities, names and interventions, etc., etc. There are various psychologies which can spring from this teaching. But I think that as, as those psychologies are getting more and more formulated, it's very important to look at how the insight is getting interpreted and transplanted. So I think that's... Oh, I have conclusions. That's very interesting. Okay. Okay. Life world of Ibn Arabi is relevant for the depth work with the postmodern psyche. This psyche can be generally accessed via somatic awareness. That's, that's a very interesting thing, and I want to emphasize it. It's enigmatic insofar as it's disconnected with its roots. When it gets grounded in certain forms of somatic awareness, it becomes available. Inside of Ibn Arabi himself is connected with the use of somatic practice. Oh, my God. I mean, the... I think it couldn't even stand it. Because <laughs> that's a heretical statement, I think, you know. Okay. Let's get it back. 
one. I don't remember my own conclusions without reading them. Okay. <laughs> Not meant to be. Let's see. Let's see who can do it differently. Okay. That's the way we're how it's called, the fourth way <laughs> right here. Insight of Ibn Arabi himself is connected with the use of somatic practice. And uh, in order to bear the fruit of self-realization, self-inquiry has to include introspection on the embodied sense of self. And this I can argument at infinitum, ground in different traditions, ground in actual human experience, insofar as the inquiry is con- con- uh, conducted as Socratic dialogue in the form of the intellectual inquiry, close to Socratic dialogue, it's not going to render the experience of self-recognition. Every sohbet that I've ever been exposed to is grounded in somatic awareness. On September 11, I've been, I'll stay a little bit more with this last one. On September 11, I've been uh, in Turkey with a group of students from the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology. And uh, we didn't know that September 11 is happening. And when it hit, we've been terrified because the idea of being stuck in Turkey or shot by our um, domestic um, uh, hawks uh, on the way back if the plane goes a little bit off kilt, you know, that was very scary. We've been working with Viktor Shishay, who is a great scholar of Ibn Arabi, and um, kind of exchanging insights. And so when this very scary event happened, and we've been absolutely taken by uh, fear, he took us into the, uh, instead of fear, he took us into Sohbet, uh, open-ended, like eight hours of Sohbet, and then the insights were emerging, the direct perception of divine, which took care of the fear. But that was practiced with somatic awareness. It wasn't the intellectual, uh, just simply the intellectual discourse. So um, I, I should stop myself because, you know, I'm get, it's getting addictive. Thank you very much. Thank you.